When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, rude boys and rude girls. We got a skanking great episode lined up for you. Today's guest is guitarist and vocalist Rob Bucket Hingley from New York City Sky Legends, The Toasters. Together, we break down the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the fan-favorite single, Two-Tone Army, taken from their 1996 album, Hard Band for Dead. Bucket has been flying the ska flag since the late 70s and with The Toasters since their 1981 inception. This tune is everything you could want in a ska song. The horn hook is infectious. The lyrics are about openness, unity, and acceptance within the scene, and a gang vocal chorus that is instantly catchy. I told Bucket that it feels like a live song, a tune they had been playing for a while before the record button was even thought of being pressed. And I was right. The song worked live, and it worked just as well on the record. So for all this and a whole lot more, don't touch that dial. Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Well, hey there, Buck. <laughs> here we are. Here we are again. Here we are again. Thanks for sitting in. You know, before we started rolling, we were talking that we saw each other last year quite a bit in 2023. We did a bunch of shows, Toasters Less Than Jake, uh, United States, as well uh, as the UK. And then uh, we were also talking about the time prior to that, which was this weird, like, summer music festival in, in of all places, Topeka, Kansas. Yeah, Topeka, Kansas. That was uh, that was definitely not on my bingo card for uh, 2020. <laughs> it's kind of hard. It's hard for me to remember what was pre-COVID and what wasn't. Yeah, that was pre-COVID. That was around 2017. That's already seven years ago. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> I know, you know, and I, I've had a couple of my friends on on the show that uh, I, it's funny, you know, backstage, how many times have we hung out and I've never asked you some of the questions that I want to ask you, you know, and I want to pick your brain kind of as a fan, you know, going back and we had talked about this recently. I said, so you're telling me the first time I saw the toasters in 92, you guys had only been a band for 11 years at that point. Where was that? Like down in Florida? Yeah, that was at the Florida Theater there in Gainesville. Oh wow! I think that was the show where the uh, the KKK guys showed up outside. Did I ever tell you that story? You did, and we we talked about that. And I, I say recently, probably within the last half a decade or so. You kind of I don't remember the whole thing, but but yeah, that was definitely an issue back then. Well, it was strange. There was a, the KKK was having a rally in Gainesville that week, and uh, we had a couple of like sharp skinhead guys who are roadies back then. And they said, hey, we've got a bit of an issue at the front door. I said, what is it? He says, well, a whole bunch of like KKK guys want to come in the show. I said, man, i got to come and hear this rationale. It's like these guys want to pay some money to see the brothers sing, you know, <laughs> and, and Sledge playing the trumpet. And so I went out and said, what's up with you guys? And the guy goes, yeah, we just want to 
come and see the show. We're big fans. We like the music, and we're we're not racists. We're just bigots. <laughs> well, that is no. so ridiculous. Because during that time, Buck, I mean. You know, Gainesville was like the one uh, blue spot on the map. It was this little hippie town, you know. And I know some of the the the, the redneck towns that, that surround Gainesville. There there was talk of some good old boys out there burning crosses or doing whatever garbage they were doing. But that's probably why they did it there. I mean, I'm sure those people weren't from Florida; they were from somewhere else. But I'm I'm sure they did that on purpose. But uh, that was very weird. I mean, and that was uh, you know that's that was only like I mean I guess thirty years ago now. Goodness me. But um, it's kind of strange to me, uh, just being in that situation, thinking, well, what century are we in? And this kind of thing is still happening in the USA. But of course, you know, here we are in 2024 and, and not a lot not a lot has changed. I know. That's, uh, you know, I was thinking about that too when we did that Ska Against Racism tour. That was in April of 1998. Yeah. And I was thinking by then, you know, hey, you know, things are starting to mellow out. You know, people are starting to accept people. We're obviously in the punk and Ska scene. It's it's you know, yeah. as much as it, it could be, it, it was that way. You always had the odd knuckleheader idiot that showed up. But for the most part, uh, yeah, I remember doing that tour in, in 98 thinking, I think I think we're on a right path here. And here we are 20 years later. It, it, it seems like uh, taking a couple steps backwards. Well, it, uh, it, all made a, it all made a roaring comeback with you know who, you know. I'm not going to invoke his name on this program, but I mean, it's like I think uh, with the current political climate, a lot of those people who kind of gone in underground of feel like validated and they're back they're back with the bang these people it's like you know they uh they didn't go away they were just waiting for uh they're just waiting for their guy right well going back to when you guys started i mean i'm thinking back to 81 and of course you're you're from england and i know you you know saw madness and and uh the specials english beat what became special beat all of this stuff but what was the climate of ska in new york in 1981 i mean i i'm trying to think of bands that would even have been kicking around were the new york citizens around yet i got here in 1980 and, and at that point um there weren't any still working ska bands in New York City. There had been one uh, two-tone era uh, called, called The Terrorists in New York City, um, but I think they'd stopped playing before I had gotten here. So for me, like nobody, you know, I was all like, yeah, two-tone this and this and that, and people were like, what is that? And I was like, wow. So, you know, but I, I realized that um, two-tone music had, had not really been promoted at all in the USA, and I think it's because the uh, just the industry at that time didn't have a pigeonhole where they could put that type of music, which is black and white people playing music together. I mean, it didn't fit in any of their marketable categories. And I thought, they, you know, in a way it was like a little bit too dangerous for people to even entertain the idea of like mixing up, like having a mixed race band like that. It's pretty crazy. And I was like, wow, you know, because, uh, you know, coming from Europe, I would have thought that, you know, America would have been way more societally advanced than Europe, but it didn't turn out to be the case culturally. So coming over in the 80s and, uh, you know, when I found out I was going to be here for more than the six months that was originally planned, I thought, well, I'll put a band together just to have something to do and, you know, just have a project to do after work. And so I started a sky band and, and I was telling people we're going to play this, and they're like, "What? What is that?" I was like, "Goodness me, you never heard of, of two tone? You've never heard of like Bob Marley or or Reggie or all this stuff?" So it was like kind of um, 
really having to like musically educate a lot of people. I mean, there was a huge uh, punk rock thing in New York City with like post Johnny Thunder's era and uh, and uh, the Richard Hell and the Voidoids and and the New York Dolls and all that kind of stuff. And the hardcore scene was just starting to get on its feet. You know, bands like Agnostic Front and Murphy's Law, Madball, all that kind of stuff. Well, Madball were a little later. So it was kind of like a pretty interesting time in New York with all these things going on. And sky music was like an unknown quantity for people. So finding people who uh, who, who knew what it was or knew how to play it was difficult at the beginning. Do you think that's how the morph came later on? with the ska punk yeah we i mean in the early days uh in new york as well we played with a lot of uh hardcore bands and punk bands in fact our first show was opening up we opened up for bad brains that was the first show we played in new york city in 1981 so that's not a bad not a bad place to jump off and then we used to do uh, hardcore matinees uh, or like weekends down at cbgb's where uh, they they would put a hardcore matinee on on Sunday afternoon, and we put a ska show on on Saturday night. So people would come from out of town to see both of the shows. So there was quite a lot of um, quite a lot of coll- collaboration between the scenes at that time. That was one of the best things about it. You guys were releasing singles during this period. Your first single, Beat Up, uh, came out in 1983. You had a debut EP called Recriminations in 1985. Yeah, that's uh, Joe Jackson used that record for us. I noticed that, and I never knew that. That is that is so cool. But So w- the six years you were getting your footing releasing EPs, your first record, Ska Boom, came out in 87. Now, did you feel you didn't need a full length till that time, or were you just amassing songs? Well, it's, I mean, it's like we were writing uh writing material and playing live and um you know of course like we, we didn't have like 10 cents to scratch our backsides but at that point and i'd been uh, the recriminations album which was like really well produced and you know like four song ep uh, that joe jackson had helped us with and like was a really professional product that we uh we got national distribution for that th- uh, through uh relativity which was in india at that point um but I was taking that round record labels to shop it and basically getting, you know, laughed out of their office saying, oh, you're not going to get anywhere playing that circus music or, or this. So there was no support whatsoever uh, in the uh, music business to sign a sky band and, and fund a project. So we basically just ended up doing it ourselves. I noticed, you know, after Joe Jackson had produced the EP, that everything since then you produced – and I wanted to ask you why, you know, did, was, did, did you ever want to work with somebody else or you're just like, I know what my band sounds like and I don't need anybody else. Well, Joe Jackson worked with us again on the Throw Me Up album. He produced that and he also produced the New York Fever album. So, uh, so he was heavily involved in the first three records. And then in the mid nineties, when we put out what I, that triptych of albums like Dub 56 and uh, Hard Band for Dead and Don't Let the Bastards Grind You Down. We were working with a, uh, a German engineer called Matthias Schneeberger, who we'd met in Berlin when we'd done the session with Joe Jackson recording there. So there was some continuity uh, working with other people there. And uh, But I've also always been heavily involved because it's like um, I feel that kind of I know where I want the sound to go uh, better than other people sometimes. 
Sure. And uh, Wikipedia let me down again, Buck, because I did not notice going through the records. They all say produced by you. Uh, Matt Malice, bass player, who, uh, uh, of course, I know very well, uh, he's credited as a co-producer on one of the records. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> which made which made me laugh, but um, I do want to dr- jump into the track now. Two Tone Army is the first track on your sixth studio album, Hard Band for Dead, which came out in '96. You guys were just a machine during this period. Uh, your previous record, Dub Fifty Six, came out in '94, and of course, you were on the road this whole time. Uh, Lead off track on the album, three minutes and nineteen seconds. There's a six bar intro. This whole intro is kind of weird because it goes six bars before the horn hook hits uh right off the top we get a snare hit and the first two bars are drums bass and a guitar panned off to the left on bar three another guitar panned off to the right joins the mix and on bar five we hear a swell of an organ panned off left before the horns come in I'm hearing, and and I couldn't find anything online, uh, and I know your your different touring uh, histories, Buck, of, of uh, different horn uh, configurations, but I'm definitely hearing a trombone and a trumpet here, and I believe a sax. Is that right? Yeah, there was a three-piece horn section, Sledge on trumpet, uh, Rick Faulkner on trombone, and, and Freddie Reiter on sax, who's, in, who's now in uh, New York Sky Jazz Ensemble. Um, so, so that was that, and uh, Dave Barry on the keyboard. But I basically ripped that introduction off the uh, selector on my radio. That's a drum riff from my radio by selector. So I stole that basically and ah. built on that. The whole way that tune came about was kind of interesting because when we were in the studio um, basically rehearsing and and tracking that record, we had been contacted by um, Nickelodeon, which was a MTV-related channel in New York, and they had had a, a cartoon show called Kablam, which they had contracted Bad Manners to do the music for and and Buster had like backed out at the last minute and left them hanging. So they said, can you um, write a theme song for this show? And so they sent me a whole bunch of the um, cartoons and it was like, like a, a hoot. And so I was starting to write something for them, which was like a little bit more, I mean, not circusy so much, but more upbeat and cartoony. And I made like um, like a country and western riff that was the same melody as Two Tone Army, and so the whole Two Tone Army tune came out of writing the theme song for that program. And I thought, wow, I'm going to turn this into a, I'm going to turn this lick, this guitar riff into a, a ska anthem song, and I'm going to call it two-tone army and that's so basically i've just got the whole idea from the cartoon show to write that tune 
Well, the, that's awesome. The horn hook is just catchy as all get out. And I got to ask, what liberty did you give or did your horn players have to come up with parts? Like, did you hum that and that was the horn part? Did you write that or, you know, what was it organic? How did it come about? I wrote most of the horn parts on that record, or at least I had the, I had the horn line say, here's what I want you to play. You figure out who's going to play what and, and you know, embellish it. But the whole thing was the line is do 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 that was the introduction to the show and the guy would say welcome to Kablam whatever so it was kind of like it was almost like writing a writing a jingle or a commercial so the whole a lot of the writing was you know can you do a six second bumper to fiddle this hole and a 12 bar intro for this so it's the whole the whole tune came together like that and the whole horn line was just a a piece of bumper music for the program where cartoons and comics collide now to take you inside and turn the pages here are your hosts henry and june it's kind of interesting how that tune came into being because it started being something else. Something else that strikes me about this song, and I've heard it numerous times uh, over the years, but when I got it under the microscope here, it feels like a live song. And what I mean by that is the arrangement's a little wacky, especially when we get to the end, the outro and and how it doesn't move back to the chorus, and, and we'll get there. But I get the sense of, and, and we used to do this. I remember when we started working with producers, I remember getting scolded one time. They're like, we're making a record. It doesn't matter live. And I'm like, yeah, but but I'm always going to think about it live. We're a live band. Yeah. I want to I wanna know how it's going to translate to the audience. And when I hear this song, I, I don't hear a lot of like, we should double this chorus at the end. It's like, no, no, no. And I think that's why the horn hook is in here so much because it's the catchiest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, we, and we, had a, we had a whole bunch of the guys who worked for Moon Records come in and this studio and just like march on the march in the studio on the on the wood floor to get that that whole like marching sound that was that was all the guys working for me at the label came in to do that and um but it was like uh when i was a kid i used to go see this band called sham 69 jimmy percy have you heard of those of course yeah we played with sham 69 they wrote anthemic tunes like that which didn't necessarily have like a super strong structure and i think you know I think I never saw him play the same tune the same way twice when I went to see him. So it was just something I, I thought, well, this is like, this tune is going to be like a cartoon. It's going to be really anarchic and maybe not have the same kind of format as some of the other tunes. Cause at that point, everybody was trying to crap the perfect song and fit everything in. And it's got to have the intro and the outro and a middle eight and a pre-chorus and all this kind of stuff. I said, well, let's just make a tune that does what it wants to do. And that's what that's what ended up coming out. That's awesome. Well, we get 16 bars of that horn hook before we hit verse one. I got to tell you, the guitar interplay here is killer. You know, a lot of bands, myself included, we had one guitar player. So, you know, we'd kind of chuck the, the, the clean guitar over here in the left speaker a little bit panned, and that's what you got. And here you got a stereo image going on, but it's not a perfect stereo. There's a lot of interplay between the what's going on with the right guitar and the left guitar. It's I love it because I come from that 
same kind of style of, of playing. My, my father was a, was a guitar player. He could play all that 50s stuff. And it sounds very 50s, 60s, what you're going for there. It's not just traditional upstrokes. I, d- I did all of those guitar parts myself. And so basically on one, on one track, there's just like the traditional, well, you know, toaster style ska beat, which is, you know, I think um, at that point we were playing it a little bit more aggressively than a lot of the other guys in the States were like coming out of a more of a trad scar or reggae feel. But I basically, you know, coming out of London and, you know, punk rock was like a, a massive influence to me. I, I mean, I actually went to the Anarchy in the UK tour at Leeds University and saw that and was pretty pretty blown away. So um, I play in a scar band, but, but really I grew up playing like rhythm and blues and rock music. So that's, that's what the other guitar on that, track is with those heavy hits bam, 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 bam. you know i like i like the who i like i like pete townsend guitar players like that you know well almost uh, 30 years later the guitar tones on this sound killer they sound awesome. I don't know what else you could have done. Whatever combo you had uh, there, I'm assuming it, it sounds like a, a telly through like a Fender Twin or something. It's beautiful. Yeah, a telly and a twin, and uh, you're a telly guy, aren't you? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I've, actually, I've actually just rebuilt uh, the guitar that I used in that session that had like succumbed to, you know, rock and roll and sweat and abuse on the road. And it's uh, <laughs> it's actually a, a reissue of the, of the Buddy Holly boat neck so it's um it's a telly that has like the fat round neck that has a lot more sustain i don't know if you've seen that yeah and i i've never played one but i know what you're talking about that's awesome i have it right here but it's just um oh it's beautiful yeah but it has the uh the neck i don't know if you can see it doesn't have the flat back that most uh telly necks have it's it's a round neck. It's rounded. Yeah, and that's they call it the they call it the boat neck. So this was reissued in 1983, uh, the anniversary of uh, Bully Holly's death, and my wife actually bought me this. So that's I think that's why I married her because she bought me this guitar. But I, <laughs> I just had it rebuilt. That is beautiful. But that's the guitar that I used on that session. So it has that Fender sound, but it has like way more sustain than than a normal telly. There's a new bug that's going around, going to blast shock waves all over your town. Take your own system and knock it down with a 90s beat on a 50s sound. They're wearing bomber flights, combat boots, skater pants, and 60s suits in a lifestyle that is hard to refute. It's a modern look, but it's all about the roots. Yeah, there you go. And that was just a shout out to um, what was happening in the 90s where basically ska music in the USA had morphed into this manifestation that had all these kind of different looks to it. So it was not just like Rude Boys and Skinheads. It was like the ska punk guys and the skater kids and all these different uh, people who were coming into the scene and, and widening it and, you know, just enabling that whole crazy ska punk explosion. I mean, who knew? Who knew that was going to happen and, and go off like it did? I mean, 
I wished I wished I'd signed the Boston's and Rancid when they came to Moon Records with their crappy demos back in the day. I should have said, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, ones, the ones that the ones that got away. But I mean, I think the lyrics on the tune are just to have a nod to all the like the the various factions of people who came together to make that crazy, crazy scene we had back back in the day. That's killer. Well, we got both those stereo guitars happening here with the bass and the drums. Great groove on verse one. I got to ask, you know, I know there's some swells here and there, but are the keys doing upstrokes with the guitars there? If they are, it's mixed brilliantly and super tight because I can't really hear it. Yeah, he, uh, Dave Barry, that keyboard, he's 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 a monster. And what I like about him is he, uh, he grew up playing in a lot of um, salsa bands and uh, Latin bands in New York. So when he plays the keyboards, he's playing as part of the rhythm section. And he's not um, he's not rushing in to fill up all, all the holes like a lot of keyboard players do. They're like overplay in a sense. But when you have the horn section, it's great to have a keyboard player who can let them do the fills and just have the, the organ player playing in the rhythm section uh, because he also plays percussion. And so it's fantastic to have that. So it's like you, you have like an extra, the extra rhythm instrument going there. The organ, as you know, can be very percussive in nature. Yeah. Well, he was playing, I mean, in the studios, normally we had this uh, Hammond B3, uh, but he also had the Hammond C3 that he'd bring on the road. And he played that, he played that thing like he was chopping wood with it. It was like great, great player. I don't know if, I don't know if you had the chance to see him play, but fantastic fantastic player he was out with you on sky against racism yeah so that guy so he's kind of uh the go-to guy and i haven't really you know after playing after having played with him it's like people say why don't you have a keyboard and i said well find me one i like and i'll i'll hire him but i mean you know after having, <laughs> after having played with dave barry the the bar is set very high well, either that that was the answer or the answer was we don't have room in the van. I mean, Scott bands are big. <laughs> yeah. And Dave Barry, um, he was playing with uh, Matt Malice in, in Second Step back in the day and then in another New York ska band called the Beat Brigade. So that's uh, it's all it's all, all roads lead back to Matt Malice, you know. Matt Malice is the Kevin Bacon of the uh, ska community. Two-Tone Army, go ahead, go ahead. Two-Tone Army, go ahead, go ahead. Two-Tone Army, go ahead, go ahead. There's gang vocals on everything here. It's really loose and fun, though. It's not super tight. You could tell this wasn't recorded to a grid. It was to tape. Uh, all the vocals besides the lead seem slightly panned off to the right, too, a little bit. Like I said, this just feels like a live band. Yeah, well, that's, that's the way you wanted to do it, and... You know, we had Cooley Ranks in, in that outfit. And so I tried to give him as much latitude as I could in terms of freestyling and doing things which were, you know, not pre-programmed. So we were just used to having him go off and like, you know, and just extend a, se a session, uh, like extemporize, you know. And um, so that, that whole band, we, it was so tight. We just played off each other a lot and uh, that's how a lot of those arrangements ended up being freestyle in a sense the whole world is up to 
Hey, everybody, don't go anywhere. We got lots more with Bucket coming right up after a few words from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. And now, back to the show. I have to ask because I texted Malice yesterday and I said to him, I said, hey, is that you on the backing vocals? I swear you can hear his nasally backing vocals say, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, is he in there? Yeah, he's in there. <laughs> I told him, I said, you stick out like a sore thumb. I love it. At the end uh, of Chorus 1, we get a little two-bar, a little, little turnaround that takes us into the re-intro for eight bars. Again, drums, bass, stereo guitars, and the organ. Before we go into verse two, verse two is a half a verse because the second half of it goes back to the chord progression <laughs> without vocals. There's a new horn line that comes in, and I love that. Don't need no member to let yourself in. You don't need no language or color of skin. Don't need no money to make a contribution to be a part of the two-tone revolution. Yeah, well, that's about the, the gist of it. And then we have the horns playing the, uh, playing the vocal melody, basically, which I'm a big believer in. I like to, I like to have that where you have a, you have a verse, but it's, uh, you're using the horn section just to play, the, play around the melody on it. That's an old songwriting trick. It is, and I'm calling that part, I'm calling it the bridge. It's kind of like a middle eight here that happens, uh, but it is the chord progression uh, of the chorus. Yeah. So I, I call that a uh, like a horn bridge is what I call it in my own buck speak. That's what I call the horn bridge. So it's kind of like a pre, it's like a pre-bridge in a way. Uh, and essentially what it is, it's, it's a instrumental verse with a little bit of messing around. 
There you go. There you go. Well, coming off of that, we're into verse three, which is a double verse again. And there's some words here. Uh, I'd probably say uh, 75, 80% of the lyrics here are the same as verse one, but you changed some stuff up. And was that off the cuff or was that how you did it live? Did you want to change it up? Do you remember why the lyrics were changed up here? Yeah, that changed it up. And, and you know, by the time we got around to recording that tune in the studio, We'd already been playing it out live quite a lot. So it had changed in, in its inception quite a bit from what we thought we were going to record and what we ended up recording because we'd, we'd already had put it in uh, into the set as the encore. And so um, Cooley, on, uh, you know, when we're doing it live, Cooley had a, a section where he was just, you know, r- r- rapping over it. So um, it was kind of like uh, the end was, it was like freestyle. So I'm not sure that that was what, what I was meant to sing, but that's what came out and it sounded good, so we just kept it. Yeah, and those are, of course, the days that, that we did go out and uh, we call it road testing new songs to see what kind of reaction you got. And, you know, that that's where you practice them and you didn't have to worry about them being on uh, something uh, called YouTube or whatever on the internet the very next second. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the internet's destroyed everything, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sound clip where we're going to promote the episode. I love it. There's a new bug that's going around. Gonna blast shockwaves all over your town. Rough up your system and smash it down. That's a lyric change. It's a 90s beat on a 50s sound. They're wearing bomber flights, combat boots. They're wearing skater pants. They're wearing 60s suits. Couple different lyrics there. It's a lifestyle that is hard to refute. It looks real modern, but it's all about the roots. That last lyric is a take from Chuck Berry who's a, a massive influence on me. And it's from one of his lyrics. Let me see if I can remember how that goes. He has a song, which is that he's saying, you've got to remember your roots. I'm trying to remember what the exact lyric is, but I, I, I purloined a Chuck Berry lyric and bastardized it for that. And so that was a nod to Chuck Berry. about who We also wrote a song about him on that same album. Well, uh, on the second half of verse three here, the organ uh, gets really playful. I, I like what it does here leading into chorus two, which is the same lyric repeated three times. Two-tone army, go ahead, go ahead, with uh, pretty much the same instrumentation uh, as chorus one. Immediately following that buck, we go into another 16-bar reintro. And why not? The horn part is catchy as all get out, uh, and it keeps people dancing. And again, it was all about live, right? You weren't yeah. going to do an eight-bar reintro here. Let's do it 16. The people are skanking. You, get, you got them in the palm of your hands now.
And in fact, you know, when we play it live, sometimes that's even even doubled up, so that that can run longer sometimes. At this point, most most people know those lyrics, so we're throwing it out to the audience, and then we say two tone army, and the audience is doing the go ahead, go ahead. Right, which is great for for audience participation back and forth. Those kind of call and response sing-alongs are are awesome. And I got to ask, you know, one of the most interesting parts of the song, Buck, is is chorus three here, the outro, because you don't go back to the chorus progression. You just stay on that G, and there's just this tension there. Did you ever go back to the regular chorus, or was it always this way? Uh, well, I think in a previous life it it, it resolved, but um, it sounded better just to write it just to write it out because I thought I don't remember if we did a fade on the album or not, but uh, one of the intentions was to do that, and I think uh, I think we just faded it out to the sound of just the marching the marching boots. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that stomping in a second which I I want to talk more to you about cuz it's really really cool. I just like how it makes me feel at the end, but there's a tension here on chorus 3 and a lot of the stuff that in particular the toasters you were writing during this period, a lot of little pieces would remind me of 60s TV shows like Maxwell Smart or something. And I I get that vibe here on this last chorus. It's like it's because of that tension. You know, TV themes show songs would do that. You'd get the poppy chorus the first two times but the last one would be a little bit weird with the same lyric well we have a we have a track on that album also called maxwell smart we play the the maxwell smart theme but i mean when i grew up i watched i watched a lot of cartoons when i was a kid like a lot but I was always really interested about those types of soundtracks. And, um, you know, like I said, this whole album, just having the chance whilst we were writing it to be at the same time working on that cartoon show at the same time. It was, I had a different set of musicians working on that project with like some of the Toasters, but also Buford O'Sullivan and uh, Django, Jeff Baker was working with and Victor Rice on bass. And so it was kind of really, I was like immersed in a cartoon idiom on on this project. And a lot of that flooded back into the Two-Tone Army album and, and gave us that influence there. So what you're hearing is a direct confluence of the two sessions I was working on simultaneously. That is great. Well, uh, we get on chorus three, basically two-tone army. Go ahead, go ahead. It happens 12 times. On the second time, the organ gets really playful, panned off to the left. The third time is the vocals. The fourth time, the organ gets playful again off to the left. The fifth 
through eighth times, the progression slightly changes and the band is doing this staccato rhythm with the toms. Uh, it's like dun, 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 dun. This is happening in that section, which kind of just changes it up a little bit. But still, you got that tension holding on those chords because it doesn't go back to the original, uh, the original chorus. At the end of the eighth time, we hear the feet stomping. They start to come in there. Yeah. Uh, and nine through 11, the, the vocals are decaying over the next three times. Times, not the ninth, tenth, and eleventh time that it happens, and then on twelve, uh, the very last time, you don't even really hear the vocals anymore. All we have left are the foot stomps that are fading away. And whose idea was that? How'd that come about? That was actually a guy called Steve Schaefer who was working at the label. Said, "Oh, we should we should just have everybody come in and record the the marching." And so basically, as a we, as we would we we'd been working with a fade out on the track, and then. As we were fading out the music, we were fading, fading up the the boots. So basically, as the song tailed away, the the boot marching fade was like coming up. So we just transitioned from the music just to the marching feet, and then we faded that back out. So the two-tone army showed up and marched off into the distance. And I got to ask you, you know, you had been at it for a while at this point, about 15 years when this song came out, and you've written a number of great songs since then. Uh, one of my favorite songs is the title track from the very next record, Don't Let the Bastards Grind You Down, which you guys were playing every night on the Ska Against Racism Tour. Uh, you've written a ton of fantastic tunes, but why this one? Why do you think this one has, uh, you know, when you look at the Spotify and the YouTube numbers and everything, and it's just a, it's a huge fan favorite? Well, I think it's because uh, it was an anthem, you know, or a scanthem. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I just want to, I just want to write this tune as a sing along. And and I had no idea that it was, you know, going to be one of the most popular tunes. But I, I just think it's, it caught people's imagination, and uh, people like the fact that it's just like so inclusionary. Like everybody's welcome, you know. You don't have to be a anything special to be a member of the two-tone army just show up and and we'll like you know we'll make some space for you so i think um people like that and uh just like out of the blue it's a song that i didn't intend to write it just kind of wrote itself by accident and sometimes those are the best ones you know the songs you didn't set out to like spend too much time worrying about oh what's going to go here and how are we going to do this the song that just wrote itself and there you go. Yeah, and isn't that amazing? I've had times in my life where someone will come up and, you know, a fan. They'll be talking about that that weird B side that was an album track, you know, and they and they want to hear that song. And I'm like, ah, oh, the the performance was awful, and this was awful, and that was awful. And and I wrote it in two seconds, and that doesn't matter to that fan. No, <laughs> it doesn't matter. They they're just grooving on the tune, and uh, it's been a long time since I've had that uh, that stinking thinking. I call. It. I don't think about that stuff anymore. It's like, yeah, I put tons of time into this this song and this album that, that nobody wants to listen to. But the song I wrote when I was 19 uh, for, in three minutes, that's that's the one they gravitate to. But I can't change that. <laughs> it's pretty funny. There was uh, there was this band in New York City called The Insteps back in the day who were a great band, uh, like on a trad style. And I was having a drink with one of those guys, and he's like, man, you really make me mad. I said, well, what's, what do you mean? He goes, well, we spend all this time like crafting these tunes, you know, were like really spend hours to do this. And then, and here you come out with a tune like Two Tone Army, 
and everybody loves it and and you know how do you, how do you do that so do do this sometimes sometimes maybe it's best not to try too hard absolutely well listen thank you so much for sitting in uh today making time time for the show and uh, what would you like to leave everybody listening what uh, what's coming up with you and the toasters well i'm taking a little bit of time off number one because it's cold i don't want to tour in the winter anymore mustard plugger out there this week it's freezing their butts off. <laughs> so uh, we've got some we've got some touring in uh in April and May, I'll be in Florida in April and May, and then some festival stuff over the summer, and a European tour in the fall. But I'm taking a little bit easy at the moment. My wife's got a heavy duty job, so I'm kind of trying to give a little bit back to the the family this year because I've been away so much. But I'm I'll be hanging in there. You'll see you'll see me around. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Chris. Hey, everybody. Hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Bucket, but don't go anywhere. We got lots more Chris Makes a Podcast, including the band you might not know and the rap segment coming right up after a few words from our sponsors. Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week, I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, email your best song and a short bio to band you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Croker, a three-piece punk rock band from Northampton, England, featuring Alex on guitar and vocals, Joe on bass and vocals, and Rab on the drums. Here's a snippet of the title track of their most recent record, Living for the Sake of Living. Chris and Chris. Chris, it's hard to imagine for me a time when ska and punk rock music weren't intertwined. And it sounds like, I didn't really know this, but it sounds like Bucket was like right at the forefront of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Toasters, you know, started out in 81 and I talked to them a little bit like what was going on back then? And they had to jump on punk shows. You yeah. know, there wasn't that a glut of ska bands to play with. And I even mentioned it to him and we didn't really expound too much on it. But I think that, uh, you know, that's kind of where maybe ska punk was bore out of. The ska bands had to play with, you know, other bands. They would play with the punks. You know, uh, something else I didn't say to him that, that you know, we we got backlash from the, from the trad ska kids, the traditional ska kids back in the 90s you know it's like you're bastardizing the sound and you know it's 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 disrespectful to the forefathers of of jamaican reggae and where where this came from and it was like okay well you could look at it that way but we're just these suburban kids that love the sound and and this is our interpretation of it it was nothing more nothing less it's funny to think back to the early 80s and 
Based on some of the ideals of what the music is all about, yes, it makes sense that punk and ska would come together as far as the scenes of music, but just the sounds of the music, if you go back to that time, it's hard to imagine there's such different sounding music that the fact that at some point somebody decided to put those two sounds together, I don't know. It's just a wild thing to think about. Well, yeah. And, you know, and the toasters weren't, you know, some people would probably label them traditional ska, but there was like this 50s rock and roll thing that they were kind of doing with it. So, you know, to me, it didn't sound like the specials or Bad Manners or English Beat and some of the, the early traditional ska bands, but they definitely put their spin on it. And then, of course, you got into the Fishbones and the Operation Ivies and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, and shortly thereafter, uh, the, the Less Than Jakes and Goldfingers of the world. Right, yeah. And it makes sense that they would kind of be that bridge because there is a rock element to the toasters Mm -hmm. you know it's not it doesn't sound exactly like the specials there is a a more rockin' aspect to it so maybe they're that bridge that got us to where we got to in the 90s Uh, i thought it was a pretty wild story about the florida show that they played and there were guys from the kkk that wanted to come in because they were fans of the toasters and the quote that i thought was crazy was we're not racist we're just bigots and i was like wait a second (laughs) isn't bigot always a negative thing and also is there a difference so chris i actually looked up what is the difference between a bigot and a racist (laughs) and a bigot is a person who is generally intolerant and hateful toward people they consider different and this could be in terms of race religion sexuality or any other way whereas a racist is a specific type of bigot one who's bigoted (laughs) based on race so So, saying you're a bigot so i don't know so a racist could you know um like uh, homosexuals, maybe or something, and but yet not like not like Hispanics, right? But bigot, but bigot covers it all. <laughs> yeah, bigot is uh, bigot is the umbrella yeah. that, and I don't know, it's all idiots. Yeah, that was sure, that was but... Archie Bunker's character was a bigot. You know, he was he was kind of okay. Yeah, I, I think that 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 would sum up that term. But yeah, I don't know if Bucket was a little off, and and maybe maybe he wasn't. That just seems so unlike Gainesville at the time. And we had some fringe religious groups outside of Gainesville. I remember there was a band called Elvis Hitler one time that came to play and they protested that band because, you know, of, of, of Hitler and the, the name of the band. But, uh, I, you know, I don't recall any KKK stuff. And, you know, Gainesville was the one place in Florida where you didn't really see the racist skinhead thing. Um, again, it was a very, very liberal town uh, in in mostly conservative Florida at that time. So I I don't recall that ever happening, but if he says it did, I'm sure it did. Yeah, it was just a a wild story. Uh, Chris, when you were a kid, you got a few years on me. Were you a Nickelodeon kid? No. Did you watch Nick? Um, I I, I didn't. I wasn't really... I mean, I've certainly watched it, but I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't glued to the TV again when when Nickelodeon was really happening uh, in the '90s. I was I was stuck in a van. Right. Yeah. I was able to be a Nick kid. I just missed Kablam. At that point, I was like 15 or 16 years old, and I was like, I'm too cool for Nickelodeon. But I do remember this song, like hearing this song around, mm-hmm. you know, at that time because of that show. That is wild. That the intentions were to write a song for the show, and then it ended up becoming 
one of the most popular toasters song. It's such a, you never know where the inspiration's going to come from to write a cool song. Absolutely. And, you know, this was 15 years into the band. They wrote their biggest song. You know, you think about that. 1996, they started in 81. So I think that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, the one more thing, and we've talked about this before, Chris, uh, he talked about road testing the song like you could play the song out and see how people responded to it before you recorded it and that could be a big part of what then ends up being on the record and this idea of road testing songs seems to be lost now i think it gets lost once you're an established band and then (laughs) you know maybe you'll throw a new song here and there but you want to play the songs that people know for the most part so road testing isn't really a thing except for before you release your first album and everything is being road tested. But I thought that was pretty cool that they got a chance to work some things out in a live environment that then became part of the recorded song. Absolutely, because, you know, as I said to Bucket, they're, uh, first and foremost, they're a live band. So it would make sense to, to road test it in front of your your uh, uh, tried and tested uh, f- fan base, your audience that, that loves you. And speaking of audiences <laughs> that love you, Chris. Nice, nice yeah. segue. I was going to jump in and do that. <laughs> That's right. If, uh, if you like the way Chris and I uh, are our rapport uh, with each other, uh, please visit chrisdemakes.com and you can sign up for our supporting cast, which is basically our VIP Patreon program, and you can get bonus episodes each week of The After Party, which is our uh, little offshoot podcast Chris and I do for uh, a very small little fee. Head over to chrisdemakes.com and uh, yeah, join us. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, we really appreciate it. You help keep the lights on over here and Not only do you get a bonus episode every week, but at this point, we've been doing the After Party podcast for years. There are tons of back episodes. We do a lot of fun ones. What's your favorite TV theme song? We do trivia episodes. We do uh, all kinds of stuff. Music history, history in general, and... I don't know. If you like Krista Makes a Podcast, I'm pretty sure you're going to like the after party. So yeah, KristaMakes.com is the place to go for that. Thank you for your support. And uh, we also have a Krista Makes a Podcast Instagram page now. My friend Chris here is putting a lot of cool clips up there. So go check that out and give us a follow. Krista Makes a Podcast Instagram page. And I want to thank this week's guest, Rob Bucket Hingley from The Toasters. And we'll see you next week. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.